0: Today we have one of my favorite thinkers on the show, Kwame Anthony Appiah is a professor of philosophy and law at New York University. He writes the ethicist column for the New York Times Magazine and is the author of several major texts on diversity, including cosmopolitanism and the lies that bind. Appiah grew up in both Ghana and in England. His work has literally defined an approach to diversity. One way to think about it is that diversity is about cooperation across differences. It's interesting to consider that paradigm alongside the paradigm that's currently in favor right now. Power, privilege, and oppression. One of the things that Appie and I talk about in this interview is what would it look like for college campuses and other types of institutions to follow a cosmopolitanism approach when it comes to diversity work. One of the interesting parts of Appiah's cosmopolitanism is how it centers religious diversity. That is, of course, especially relevant for the Interfaith America podcast. Let's get into the conversation.
1: You can't be against racism if you aren't against Islamophobia or homophobia or sexism or disrespect for people with disabilities and so on. I think if someone claims diversity for their particular agenda, they're doing something that sort of violates the real spirit of the thing. The real spirit of the thing in a society like ours is we want to live with and accept the fact that we're all doing our own thing. We're different from one another. We're not trying to make us all the same. And we can collaborate with people with whom we disagree very deeply couldn't be a deeper metaphysical disagreement than the disagreement between atheists and theists. The universe is very different if theism is true from the way it is if atheism is true. But theists and atheists can and do, have and will be able to collaborate, each from their own position. I mean, that's the point, right? And that means that the argument for an atheist for why she should respect theists is obviously different from the argument for theists about why they should respect atheists in some sense, because they're they're starting from a different place. And of course, it depends on which particular form of theism and what particular religious tradition you come from. All the major world traditions of moral thinking, Confucianism, uh, Buddhism, um, Hinduism, Sikhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and so on, all of them have within them more or less Cosmopolitan traditions. All of them have a kind of exclusivist, what we nowadays often call fundamentalist, set of traditions, and a set of uh, traditions that are open to collaboration, to uh, working with others. All of the, all of the great Abrahamic scriptures uh, talk about our duties to strangers and about, you know, when when um, Jesus is asked who's my neighbour, he he tells a story about someone. A Samaritan, who's the kind of person that the people he's talking to don't think of as one as one of them, and think of them as kind of inferior and outside.
0: Not just that, impure. They they followed a different god.
1: They followed the wrong god. They
0: followed the wrong god.
1: So I and, and we can find parallel texts in the way that uh, the Quran treats people of the book, who are other non-Muslim theists, uh, monotheists. And many of the traditions of Judaism, so and and of course the Buddhism, Confucianism, the same. Confucianism talks about our having a duty of benevolence to all under heaven. That means everybody on earth. But but the point is, the deep argument for cosmopolitanism for a Protestant is going to depend on their view of the world, on their theology, and so on. And that's fine. And and the deep conviction, my deep conviction, that that, that I owe respect to people who have, in my view, the wrong view about lots of things. That too has to come from my metaphysical position, has to come from where I used to come from. But we can do it. And so the point is that cosmopolitanism isn't about sharing a single theory of how to get along. It's just the commitment to getting along from our various positions, recognizing that no time soon, and I hope not ever, uh, will everybody be all the same.
0: So one of the things that strikes me, and this is very much how you're speaking now, is that in lots of ways, cosmopolitanism begins from religious difference. As you say, there's no greater difference than atheists and theists. And then you write about this over and over again in The Lies That Bind and in cosmopolitanism. Muslims go to Mecca, Catholics go to Mass, and they they think different things about that. And that is a very different beginning point for arranging the world. Incidentally, that is the heart of the work that we do at Interfaith America. The big idea is that a religiously diverse democracy was thought of as impossible for centuries and centuries and centuries by the category of people you fit in, which is philosophers. Mm -hmm. Philosophers thought it was impossible. And after the European Wars of Religion, and you write about this eloquently in many places— a different set of arrangements were set up in different parts of the world. In Europe, it was one religion per state. The United States embarks on something different, which is a multi-religious democracy. What is interesting is how little many people in the world of diversity work think of these issues right now. What's missing in our era of diversity work when there is scant attention to that? very fundamental root of American democracy.
1: There's a tradition in modern political philosophy of urging us to keep religion out of the public sphere, for example. But what's the point of telling people who take seriously the thought that they have a duty to follow uh, the word of God, that they mustn't talk about that when they're talking about the important things in our society? Of course, If you start from your assumptions and you know I have different ones, you'll know that much of what you say uh, won't be very convincing to me. But I certainly would like to know what actually motivates you. I don't want you to pretend that you don't believe in things. I want my fellow citizens to be honest about what they, honest to me anyway, about what they really care about. And then I want to think about how we can live in a world which can accommodate their picture and mine. I think it's obvious, for example, that if it's important to someone that they display religious signs that they they wear a a turban for a Sikh or um, some kind of veil for a Muslim woman or a crucifix for a Catholic, it seems it's obvious that if that matters to them, then we better organize the public sphere so they can do that. And that's what I think is wrong with the way the French think about these things.
0: One of the things I, I want to continue to kind of push on and maybe see if there's something concrete that might be enacted out of this is cosmopolitanism as a paradigm that sits as an alternative to current DEI work. Uh, and again, my my goal here is not to disparage current DEI work or anti-racism. I you know want to be kind of descriptive and analytical, but I'm curious. Like you've taught at universities forever, right? Princeton and now NYU. It's totally plausible that the president of a university would approach you and say, hey, listen, I think that we've staffed our diversity office with 30 or 40 people, and a lot of what they're doing is work on behalf of some identity groups in opposition to other identity groups. That president might say, I think that that's fine, but I've been reading cosmopolitanism recently, and I actually like your approach better. I like the idea that diversity work is not just let's say black lives matter activists uh shouting down police officers it is black lives matters activists of all identities incidentally particular ideology but but multicultural having conversations with police officers and i don't like the bias response teams that we have at my university that comes out of a particular paradigm and part of what we're getting is a lot of frankly frivolous complaints a professor is telling a student that their paper isn't very good and that student is filing a bias response claim. I'm curious this president this university president says to you if cosmopolitanism is a paradigm and if we can create a diversity program which would include freshman orientation and RA training and panel discussions that would follow on from cosmopolitanism instead of let's say anti-racism. Would you take that gig? Would you be that consultant?
1: I mean, I'm, I'm happy to help think about that, and I do think that it's important to focus not on, as it were, crisis management, but on building community, and building community means you're talking to each other. Now, as it happens at my university, the Christian priests and ministers and the rabbi and the imam do do a lot of this, and they were encouraged to do so by our president. I mean, when they started, we've had two presidents since. But
0: yeah, by the way, Rabbi Sarna and Imam Latif—they're close personal friends. Excellent people.
1: Okay, good. Well, I'm an admirer of of both of them, and I was an admirer of the president who sort of, I think, put that all in place. Because again, he's an interesting character because he's he's a devout Catholic who built us a campus in a Muslim country, right? (laughs) And even while he was president flew there regularly in order to teach classes on that campus out of his deep conviction of the importance of exactly what you're talking about. And it probably is relevant that he had a, she died young, unfortunately, but but he had a Jewish wife. And I I have a Jewish husband. So I think I very much value that work. The trouble is the conversations that don't happen, I think, are the ones between people for whom religion is important and people who say it isn't important to them. And that's an important conversation, too. It's not just about dialogue among the faithful. Increasingly in our country, we have what, uh, what Putnam calls the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, who say none of the above when you ask them what their religion is. Now, they're not mostly atheists. They don't, not, That's not they don't believe in God. But they don't believe in any uh, church, mosque, temple, uh, synagogue. They don't believe in the organized church. And I think persuading those people that they too should be talking to people who are faithful in various ways uh, is a thing that the university can do. Now, that paradigm of talk across difference tends to be handled in our society in a way that, generally speaking, picks sides. That is to say, you know, I'm gay and I don't like homophobia, but some people have principled objections to gay sex and gay marriage. And I should be willing to listen to them. And I hope they should be, and they should be willing to listen to me.
0: Can I just say, that is a remarkable statement in this era. I mean, that's the kind of thing that Obama does when he goes to Notre Dame in 2009, 2010. He basically says, look, I'm pro-choice and you're pro-life. We're going to find lots of ways to get along, but there's going to be some things that are just going to be deeply different Mm -hmm. in the most respectful way, right? Again, that is, in my mind, the essence of the cosmopolitan ethos, which is, here's my identity and there is yours. I'm going to learn about yours, even when it not just opposes mine, but is insulting to mine. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that that is a remarkable statement in an era in which the trigger finger is, how are you oppressing me? And I'm just curious what you think of the turn to how quickly people are saying, I don't want to understand you. I want to call you an oppressor.
1: Yes. Well, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's, of course, it's easier than the hard work of dialogue. (laughs) I mean, that's one reason people do it. Also, I'm afraid one reason people do it is because we've set up a paradigm and there are people as it were, teaching people to do this. Yes. Institutions whose point is to get you to be cross about other people uh, oppressing you. Now, like you, I want to insist that, of course, none of this is any kind of defensive oppression. Right. It's just a recognition. Well, two things, I think. One is, as my grandmother would have said, uh, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Now, words do hurt people. But still, we ought to be, in a, in a diverse society, we ought to be uh, thickening our hides. We, we ought to be not leaping to accusations of hostility and microaggressions and so on, as, as, as it were, the first move. I think the first move is to figure out whether, in fact, that's what's happened. Whether, in fact, what the other person said can't be interpreted in a charitable way, as opposed to leaping to the uncharitable interpretation.
0: I mean, to take a prime example of this, and we did a a big episode on this a few months back, it was about the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad shown in a class at Hamlin University. Mm -hmm. And it was a conversation about what happens when an art history professor teaches art. And by the way, the art of a civilization in which people within that civilization, in this case Islamic civilization, have a disagreement about which kind of art should be shown. But for centuries, Muslims like me have not only depicted the prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, in artistic manner, but for the reasons of piety. And in the case that takes place at Hamlin. A student says, I've never seen this before in my life, and it offends me. Incidentally, you go to college to see things you've never seen before in your life, right? Like, that's part of what an education is. And it gets escalated to not only the president's office, it gets escalated to a public forum in which a Muslim activist says that depicting the Prophet Muhammad is akin to pedophilia and Nazism, and the adjunct gets dismissed. And that seems to me like literally the opposite of cosmopolitanism.
1: Yes. Well, look, notice that the key to that story is a whole parcel of ignorance. If you go, as I have, to the, to the museum in Doha, the Museum of the Islamic World, you will see representations of the Prophet done by Muslims in a whole bunch of traditions. Now, of course, it is true that there is an anti sort of iconoclastic uh, tradition in Islam as there is in Christianity. We must remember that huge numbers of uh, images of uh, Joseph and Mary, for example, were destroyed by Protestants in the English Revolution. This this is a thing that goes on all, all the time. So people fight about how to represent these things, and that young man or woman who said those things was, among other things, expressing massive intolerance towards other Muslims, never mind anybody else. Because within the very broad range of just Sunni tradition, there are lots of representations. And of course, Islam is not all Sunnis. But the point is, this is ignorance. Somebody once complained to me that I was using the N-word when I used the word Negro in a discussion of uh, Du Bois when I was discussing his book, The Negro. (laughs) And this person just, you know, didn't know anything about the history of that word, and interpreted it in the context of their particular background, where this word is is stigmatized uh, by by Black people, and wasn't willing, as it were, to respond to the thought that they should think about all that history before, uh, before complaining or well, they should learn some of history before complaining. So what this hypersensitivity encourages is acting, as I say, in this uh, super sensitive way and without openness to making sense of what the other person was up to and without a, any kind of serious historical grasp of, in, the, in that case, uh, traditions of iconography in Islam, but in many other contexts, other things. So. We're encouraging people to focus on how they feel, rather than on learning and thinking, which seems to me what colleges are for. When I I talk about identity, of course, in my classes, and at the beginning of every class, I say, look, we may upset each other, but let's assume that we're all acting in good faith. So if you are upset, let's think about it, and let's use it as an occasion for learning, but let's not use it as it were to start a fight.
0: After the break, Anthony and I get into the opposite of what cosmopolitanism might be and the relevance and implications for the anti-racism paradigm. By the way, if you're enjoying this conversation, you ought to check out my new book, We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. It's a guide for those who want to make positive social change And an invitation into the next chapter of American Religion. A chapter I'm calling Interfaith America. We need to build this published by Beacon Press and available wherever you buy books. Now, back to the podcast. So if the root problem was only ignorance, then there's a there's a ready solution, which is education, right? Which is actually let me Teach you about the many groups within Islam and the many artists within the civilization who've depicted this. Yes. But the root problem is not just ignorance because the professor got fired, right? The professor was actually involved in an act of education and enlightenment and enrichment and illumination, doing what a professor does, teaching something that students don't know and that the students, based on their Legitimate religious interpretation, even as an Ismaili Muslim who believes that depictions of the Prophet are both beautiful and reverential, I, like you, have great respect for people who come from a different mother, a different theological or legal tradition. Now, that shouldn't prevent me from depicting the Prophet, but I should take your view seriously. But the problem here is not just you don't know about depictions of the Prophet, it's that you have the power to cancel, to call out to fire, to exclude, to shame. And that, in Walzer's terms, is a regime. And we've moved from anti-racism as a critique, which, by the way, I support as a, as a critique. I think it's a very useful critique to anti-racism as a paradigm. It explains all sorts of things to anti-racism as a regime. If you don't abide by the language and modes that I think are best, I can punish you. And that, again, seems to me like literally the opposite of cosmopolitanism. This might be a bit of a dangerous reference, but you know, reading some of John Lewis's work recently, he writes about Stokely Carmichael's taking over SNCC in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And he was like, it was a regime change. And it went from a nonviolent, we are all included in the American experiment, to a totally different mode to Black Power. And there are things to recommend Black Power, incidentally both as a critique and as a symbolic form. But I almost wonder if that's part of what's happened in in, in the shift from the Obama era to what might be called a resistance, right? From a cosmopolitanism ethic to an anti-racism ethic. It's (laughs) kind of a a shift from John Lewis to Stokely Carmichael and SNCC. I'm curious what you think of that.
1: Well, I I I can see the analogy. There's a vast range of things going on under the rubric of anti-racism, many of which are just fine, I think. You know, I couldn't be fired for doing what that person did because I have tenure. And I assume this person didn't have tenure. Otherwise, it's not just a scandal, but a, but a contract violation if, if the person was fired. You know, these things do happen. They don't lead to firings all that often.
0: They do lead to public shavings with some regularity.
1: When, when these difficult things happen, I think that everybody, including the people who are being unjustly criticized, uh, needs to take a step back and try and figure out in a serious way what's going on and try to understand it. The trouble in the sort of episode you talked about is that pretty quickly, nobody's trying to understand anybody. They just line up sides. And so at that point, conversation is, is sort of impossible. And at that point, the job of the university is to say to everybody, This is a space where people can say things that they believe to be true. And if you don't like it, you can say what you believe to be true. But we don't kick people out for saying relevant things that they believe to be true. But but universities are not doing their job in this respect. I mean, our job is to create a space in a society in which many people live much of their lives despite the diversity of our society, in relatively homogeneous uh, circumstances. Most Christians have not been to a synagogue or, or a mosque. Most Muslims don't make regular visits to church. Most uh, Jews don't uh, either. And most atheists uh, only go to weddings at religious institutions. <laughs> and occasionally, perhaps, the odd uh, First Communion or, uh, or a bar bat mitzvah. And as you know, our society is relatively uh, racially homogeneous at the sort of micro level. And for many young people, college is the first time they're actually in a multiracial, a seriously multiracial community. And many of them are delighted by that. I mean, they, they've been waiting for it. They want it. They want to be able to talk to people of, of many kinds. That, that's part of the, the pleasure of university for them. We need to create a space in which we use that diversity more actively where we encourage more conversation between people who have not just different thoughts about the world, but different ways of being in the world, different different practices. And, you know, I've been attending a seder often in my own home for the last more than 30 years, uh, in the first place in my parents-in-law's home. And I've learned a lot about thinking about freedom from seders, and also a lot about family. A lot of the value of Learning to live with difference comes from being with difference, not from arguing about things or discussing propositions or even learning things. It's just being together, learning to be together with people who are different from you. And my own view is that my ease with this just is the result of an enormous piece of good fortune, which is that I grew up in a multi-religious, multi city, and I had Muslim cousins and and cousins in a variety of different Christian denominations and and um, and my mother had uh, Jewish cousins in England, so I grew up in a family in which people knew that people you loved could be of different could be of different faiths
0: right and and the deep disagreements that go along with I:
1: absolutely my, I, my loved,
0: I loved all your stories about that that it's yeah. it's the Muslims who are called to reverse the spells in Ghana, right
1: Yes and my uncle Afif, who was a very very devout Sunni Muslim who grew up in in Lebanon but married in Ghana and lived there was the most tolerant, loving his religion meant an enormous amount to him, but he was a tolerant, loving, wonderful uncle, and we loved going to them. We used to go to them to uh, in Ramadan because the food was better and <laughs> that 's a privilege I, I want to insist i mean that was a privilege, and not everybody has that privilege. some people grow up in in very homogeneous places, and so it 's harder perhaps for them it's not less natural and and the way to do it is. Probably the way I did it, which is not, I didn't discuss religion with Uncle Aviv. I just sat around with him as a child and he put food on my plate and made me eat. Uh, and we got, you know, we, so we were at peace with one another. And then we, we knew at that point I was very devout Christian. Uh, we knew that we disagreed about that, but so what, as it were? Uh, God was going to figure all that out in the end. Right.
0: Yeah. I, one of our key lines here is, the only way to have a diverse democracy is to be able to disagree on some fundamental things and to work together on other fundamental things.
1: And to be, to want to know that, right? If something matters to you and you're my fellow citizen and it's relevant to some matter of public policy, why on earth wouldn't I want to know? Right. And why on earth wouldn't I want, why on earth wouldn't I want to figure out whether there's a way around? Uh, We shouldn't force Sikhs to wear uh, motor bicycle helmets, obviously. I mean, that seems so obvious to me that when people deny it, I don't know how to, I don't know how to proceed. We shouldn't hire Sikhs who want to wear turbans to wear a motor bicycle helmet. There's no other religious tradition in our country for which it matters that you should not wear these things on your head that I'm aware of. And so is only a small number of Sikhs, relatively speaking. And it doesn't damage our insurance regime or our, or our safety regime uh, more than a tiny amount, uh, not to permit an, an, an exception of that sort.
0: So, when you are encountering somebody who has a deeply felt identity that is, in fact, hurtful to yours, somebody, and this is something you write about frequently in The Ethicist, somebody with a particularly conservative religious identity, could be Christian or Muslim or Jewish or otherwise, who loves you as a human being, does not want to recognize your marriage or to accord a sense of what you would consider respect to being a gay man. What are things you think and do in your mind to be able to have a conversation with that person? Are there kind of mental tricks you use?
1: Right. Well, if they love me, that means I know them. (laughs) And that means that we have many things we have done together that have nothing to do with with my sexuality or, or my marriage or anything like that. And so these are precisely the people that I might be able to have a conversation with in which I can say to them, and I'll do it for the Christian case, which I know best, what do you think about those Christian thinkers who churches that now recognize gay marriages and have gay clergy? What's the mistake you think they're making? Because it seems to me that it's possible to be a Christian to follow in the way of the Lord, and and have a different view from you. So I'm not going to ask you to give up, as I have, the Bible as a source of authority, but I'm going to ask you to think about people in your tradition who have read the same book and grown up with many of the same practices and sing many of the same hymns, who have a different view. And because I was raised as a Christian, I can have that conversation with them because I know the relevant passages and I know the relevant theology and i can take them seriously if they if they're willing to have me take them seriously so that's the first thing i would say i
0: mean i love that i i'm just going to repeat that i can take them seriously if they are willing to have me take them seriously that's a great yes. line about somebody else's identity
1: yes i mean look conversation is an activity that involves consenting adults both parties have to be into it if the person doesn't want to talk to me about this then Apparently, that I remember they love me. So apparently I'm a friend of theirs already. I'm not going to stop being their friend because we can't agree uh, about. For one thing, the thing they don't think is a thing that I don't think matters. They don't think it's a sacrament. I don't care whether it's a sacrament. Sacraments mean nothing to me. Why should I worry about what someone thinks about something that I don't it doesn't matter to me. So, when
0: somebody says to you, but they're denying your humanity, which is a frequently used phrase. Right
1: yes. Now, well, right? but that's preposterous. They're not denying my humanity. They love me. We, we, we uh, go to the movies together. Uh, we uh, we uh, discuss uh, other
0: things. Uh,
1: other things. I mean, I, I think that often you can have these conversations with people if you've already built up the relationship around other things. it's no point in starting a conversation with someone, your first meeting by saying, here are my non-negotiable demands. You have to recognize that gay people are fine. Uh, you have to treat my marriage seriously and so on. I mean, <laughs> no, no sane person would do that. If you're going to get to know somebody, you're going to get to know them about talking about something, but you don't start with the hard things. You get to know one another. And that cohabitation, that being together thing is really, psychologically powerful it's i mean the genius in a way of the gay rights movement in america in the 60s was they argued for coming out why because it would turn out that if enough people came out lots of people would realize that they already knew and liked some gay people they just didn't know they were gay and they were already committed to their relationships with them so they didn't go up to strangers who identified as gay and start talking to them But when it turned out that your cousin Joe was gay and, you know, was liked him and, you know, you would pick him on a basketball team. I mean, in a way, to me, one of the most surprising identity phenomena of the last of, of my adult life is how three quarters of Americans now believe that gay marriage is fine. And that means not just that young people have grown up thinking this, but that some older people have changed their minds because there aren't enough young people to make that 75%. And they have. And I think, and this is true, by the way, I mean, a majority of evangelical young people, conservative evangelical young people, believe in gay marriage because they believe in marriage. (laughs) And the fact that their congregations may not be teaching this, but they don't care about that. Why is that? Well, I think it's because they've grown up knowing some gay people, and it's sort of old news.
0: Right. And it became old news, as you said, very fast,
1: surprisingly fast. And notice that the this is a political judgment. It's not a judgment about the the value of of, of gay relationships or the or the sinfulness or non sinfulness of gay sex. It's a political view. It's a view that the state should acknowledge these relationships, whatever I think of them. Right? That's the paradigm of a cosmopolitan attitude.
0: I loved this conversation. Anthony shared some really great tools for having conversations with people who you might disagree with. Think about starting the conversation from a place of familiarity and curiosity. Ask questions and remember that no one can take your humanity away from you. Let us know how it goes in the comments or wherever you live on social media. You can find us on Twitter at InterfaithUSA and Instagram at InterfaithAmerica. And read obvious books, The Lies That Bind, and Cosmopolitanism, available everywhere. To read more about this conversation, and to find resources and stories about bridge-building in our religiously diverse democracy, visit our website, www.interfaithamerica.org. I'm Ibu Patel. Interfaith America with Eboo Patel was launched by a generous grant from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Interfaith America with Eboo Patel is a production by Interfaith America and Philo's Future Media. I'm your host, Ibu Patel. The Interfaith America team is Silma Suba, Executive Producer, Terry Simon, Coordinating Producer, Ali Vrogop, Researcher, Warwick Sabin, editorial support, Johanna Zorn, editorial consultant. Christina Vieira, creative director. Brandon Robertson, social media manager. Catherine O'Brien, marketing manager. Vanessa Young, production assistant. Production by Philo's Future Media team. Keisha TK Dutes, executive producer. Manny Faces, producer and audio editor. Share this show with a friend and rate, follow, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Find more resources on religious diversity. Racial Equity, Bridging and Belonging, Deen and Dunya, Faith and World at www.interfaithamerica.org.